Good morning. Let's take uh, God's Word together and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Uh, Russell Moore, in his book on adoption, writes the following. Imagine for a moment that you are adopting a child. Some of us have been through that process. And... Uh, Russell Moore invites us to, to imagine such a scenario. Imagine for a moment that you are adopting a child as you meet with the social worker in the last stage of the process. You are told that this 12-year-old boy has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in attempting to burn things and skin kittens alive. His father, grandfather, and great-grandfather had histories of violence ranging from spousal abuse to murder. Each ended his life the same way, suicide. Now think for a minute. Would you want this child? Would you want this child? Russell Moore adds, well, my friend, this child is you, and this child is me. That is what the gospel is telling us. That is what the gospel is telling us. Our birth father has fangs, and left to ourselves, we will show ourselves to be just as serpentine as he is. But here's the gospel. Here is the gospel. That a wondrous God takes radically depraved sinners into his family and turns them into sons. That is the gospel. What it means to be adopted into the family of God and be designated from here into eternity as a son of God. That's what we're going to ponder today. We're going to consider specifically the pathway to adoption as sons. And the Apostle Paul is going to be our guide. Follow along in his epistle to the Galatians, chapter 4, verse 1. I mean, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. 
Now, if you have been following along in this series, you know what Paul is doing, principally doing, in this epistle. He is combating an error. He is confronting those who think that salvation, um, arriving at a, at a right standing before God, that salvation is ultimately contingent upon their performance, their observance of the law. And Paul has been coming at this from various angles, and he has been showing, demonstrating, proving that no, 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 no. The law, that is the Mosaic covenant, that law given to Moses, was never given as a ladder to heaven. It was never, ever intended as a means to salvation, uh, to salvation but was simply given to point to the promise, the promise being the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, uh, whereby all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are justified before God on account of their faith and on account of what the Lord Jesus has done on their behalf. This is what he is combating, this, this false idea that, no, if I really want to be saved, if I, if I really want God to accept me, welcome me, if I want to make it in on the judgment day, then I, I need to observe the, the law, the Old Testament law. And Mo, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. And basically, he is saying the same thing in chapter 4, the first seven verses. Let me walk you through his argument. It's pretty simple. He begins with an illustration. Okay? Just an illustration. Are you with me? An illustration from everyday life, verses 1 and 2. It's not that complicated. He says, let's imagine there's an heir. Have I lost anyone? I hope not. We're in real trouble. There's an heir. All right? Father has a son. Son is the heir of all that the father has. Okay? There is, a, there is a date appointed by the father when the son will actually get what's coming to him. So far, so good? On this side of the date, on this side of the date, that day appointed by the father, well, that heir is what? He is but a child. It is a, 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 a day, if you like, of infancy and of immaturity, and therefore he must be placed under what? A guardian. Somebody to watch over him, look out for him, help make decisions on his behalf. And in effect, during that period of time, the son's really no different from a slave because he can't do whatever he wants. He can't make his own choices, his own decisions. He is under the guardianship of another. But the day comes, the day appointed by the father, when what happens? Well, that son, he's no longer a child. He is now an adult. He has moved from an age of immaturity to an age of maturity. He is no longer under a guardian, but he is free from this guardian. And he is now a full heir of everything that belonged to him. It belonged to him even when he was a boy and immature, this stage of infancy. It was still his. But in effect, he was a slave because he had no individual rights and he was under the guardianship of another. But the day appointed by his father has come and now he is a mature adult and he enters into everything that belongs to him. All right, we understand that, don't, don't we? We can get that. That makes sense. It's just an illustration from everyday life. That's the first two verses of Galatians 4. Paul then goes on in the next few verses, verses 3 through 5, with an application. He applies it and said, look, there's a, there's a parallel here. 
I hope you see where I'm going with this. You can almost hear Paul saying that reading between the lines. And he says, this is what we are like, you know, when you think of believers, uh, those who believe in God's promise concerning the Lord Jesus, and those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so those who are believers, they are heirs, all right? But I want you to understand there is a before and there is an after, all right? We've put away our little brush here. You know when you're painting, sometimes you have a very fine brush because you're interested in detail. We've put that away and we've got the roller out, okay? Because we're painting a wall. So we're going big here, all right? Paul is painting a very big picture of redemptive history. And he wants us to understand this before and after when it comes to the heirs, believers. And he says, look, there was a before time. Just like that heir who was in a stage of infancy under a guardianship, so too there was a time when we were children. We were infants. We were immature. And therefore a guardian was necessary. The guardian was what? I almost asking you to say it. Don't say it. You already know it though, right? The law. That's why the law was given. It wasn't given as a means of salvation. The promise to Abraham had already been given that whosoever believes, right, is saved just as Abraham was saved. And the promise is fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus. But until that coming, during this stage of infancy and immaturity, a guardian was needed. But now the time, the day appointed by the Father has come. How does Paul describe it there in verse 4? He refers to it as the fullness of time. The fullness of time has come. And therefore, the heirs are no longer immature children. They are now what? Mature adults. And the guardian, the law, has become what? Obsolete. We no longer need that guardian. He served a very important function in the history of the plan of salvation, but that function has now come. It has gone. It belongs to the past. So you can see where he's going with his argument here, can't you? Why would you want to go back and live under the guardian? Why would you do that? Why would you go back into what is the equivalent of a life of slavery under the law? Why would you go back and observe all of those feasts and festivals, and all of those dietary laws, and cleansing laws, and sacrifices, and all that other stuff that belonged to the Mosaic Covenant. It was given for a very specific period of time, a period of time that was marked by immaturity, childishness. It was necessary until the fullness of time. The fullness of time has come and gone. We're no longer children. We are now adults. We're no longer immature. We are now mature. We no longer are under a guardian, the law. We are now without that guardian. And who stands in redemptive history? Who stands at this moment of great transformation in this plan of salvation? It's the Lord Jesus. Look at what he, Paul says in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son points to his deity. More on that perhaps in a moment. Born of woman. It points to his humanity. And so here we have the second person of the Trinity, 
uh, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, entering into human history, a point of time, the incarnation, born of woman. We know him as Jesus Christ, born under the law, born under that guardian, born under it. Why? That he might actually fulfill it that he might actually obey it perfectly, that he actually fulfills all that those sacrifices pointed to. He actually fulfills all that the feast of Jehovah pointed to. He actually fulfills all of those laws concerning what you can eat, what you can't eat, what is clean, what is unclean. It is all fulfilled in him. The fullness of time, he was born under the law. So that what? Verse 5, he might redeem those who were under the law. That he might enter in this new, bring to fruition this new phase, this new stage in redemptive history, whereby the law is now in the past, that guardianship has ended, whereby the heirs, look at the last statement in verse 5, might receive Adoption as sons. You see his argument. It's pretty sound. It's pretty airtight, isn't it? You can just kind of lean in and listen closely to Paul and his pastoral heart, his pastoral concern for the churches in Galatia. My friends, you've been duped big time. Unbelievably so. That there are those in your midst uh, who are telling you that believing in the Lord Jesus is not enough. There are those in your midst who are telling you that justification, that is a right standing in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, isn't enough. You still got to go back under that law. You still need to do certain things. You still need to fulfill certain rights. You still need to perform certain things. And Paul here is just piling on the arguments upon arguments. And basically, in a nutshell, it's this. Oh, my friends, those who are teaching you those things do not understand the first thing concerning God's plan of salvation. They do not understand the most basic things, the most basic truths when it comes to redemptive history. The law served a purpose. It's gone. It's done. It's in the past. The fullness of time has come. God has sent his son into this world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those, free those who were under the law, so that now we are mature. We've reached adulthood. We now receive adoption as sons. There's the illustration. Verses 1 and 2. There's the application. Verses 3 through 5. And now Paul draws out in verses 6 and 7 a couple of implications. Here's implication number 1. Verse 6. Because you are sons, because you now live, you live on this side of the fullness of time. You live on this side, this great moment in redemptive history. You live in the age of fulfillment. You have received adoption as sons. And because you are sons, here's the first implication. God has sent the spirit of his son, it's the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, crying, Abba, 
Father. And so God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Do not think, do not imagine in your mind that this is some sort of spatial transference, that that Paul is referring to something geographical, that the Holy Spirit was here and now the Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit doesn't change places. If that is the way you're thinking, that He's over there and now He's here, that's actually heresy. Let's not think that, okay? The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He is in all places at all times. He is not saying that the Spirit was over there and now He's here. The Holy Spirit does not change places, but He manifests His presence differently by His operations. And so God has sent His Spirit into the hearts of those whom He has adopted as sons, And this influence of the Spirit is seen in things such as the new birth, regeneration, illumination, understanding now what I never understood before, sanctification, giving me a love for God and a love for His commands, which I I, I never ever had before. And so conviction, conviction for sin. I was sailing through life and I thought everything was pretty good. Then all of a sudden, overwhelmed with guilt and shame because of my sin. That's a work of the Spirit of God. That is a sending forth of the Spirit of God. And this work, this influence, as a result of his performance in the lives of these adopted sons, issues in what? A cry. It's right there at the end of verse 6. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Notice three things, please. This cry, firstly, it indicates life, doesn't it? I mean, that's the sense there. Sixth verse again. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. You see, something has taken place. You've been adopted. You've been brought into this family. And the first sign that you are in this family is what? You cry. Why? Because this cry indicates that you are now what? You're now alive. Formerly, you were dead spiritually. You have now come to life, and that coming to life, that new birth, issues forth in this cry, Abba, Father. Again, appealing to Russell Moore's book, he writes, profoundly so, movingly so, of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage. He's speaking of his own adoption experience. He adopted two little boys from Russia, and he pens the following as he reminisces. Of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our son, I believe it was Benjamin, one stands out above all the others in its horror. It was quiet. The orphanage was quiet. And this stands out above all other aspects in its horror. The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. If you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their beds. They didn't cry because no one responded to their cries. That is dehumanizing in its horror. The first moment I knew Benjamin had received us in some strange and preliminary way, was the moment we walked out of the room after visiting him in the orphanage when he fell back into his crib and cried 
the first time I have ever heard him do it, it was because, for whatever reason, he seemed to be aware that he'd be heard. And for whatever reason, he no longer liked the prospect of being alone in the dark. That is where the Holy Spirit leads us. We were dead, rocking back and forth. Cry out to God? Why cry out to God? But the Spirit of God is sent into our hearts. There is a quickening. There is an illuminating work. There is this transference from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from death to life, and the first sign of life. It's even true when a baby is born, isn't it? What's the first thing you're, lo you're looking for, actually listening for? is a cry, the cry. It's powerful. It's moving. It's challenging. Do you cry like that? If not, what does it mean? There is no life. That's all it can mean, my friend. And if there is no life, what does that mean? You're still dead in your trespasses and sins, my friend. And if you're still dead in your trespasses and sins, you must be born again. Born again of the Spirit of God. There's the first thing. This cry indicates life. Secondly, it expresses assurance, doesn't it? Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It is an expression of assurance. This isn't some silly, giddy experience. That's not what we are talking about. This isn't some still small voice you're going to try to listen for in the back of your head at two o'clock in the morning. That's not what we're talking about. This is not some overwhelming sense of emotion that's going to enter your life as a flood. That's not where we're going with this. This is the Holy Spirit making the Bible come alive to us. This is the Holy Spirit making biblical truth come alive to us. This is the Holy Spirit helping us to see things we did not see before and apply them in a fashion we never applied them before. I cry, Abba, Father. It is a cry of assurance. Why? Because I now understand what? I'm a sinner. That's what the Bible says. You're a sinner. I now understand what? That the Lord Jesus died for? Sinners. I now get what? That God receives sinners who come to him having put their faith in the Lord Jesus. They come to him through the Lord Jesus, confessing their sins, bringing no righteousness of their own, but clinging fast to Christ. And, and I think to myself, well, I have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, well, well, the Bible says I'm a sinner. Well, yeah, I am a sinner. Well, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus atoned for sin. Okay, well, 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 well why not my sin? Well, well, the Bible says that whosoever believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. I believe in the Lord Jesus. Therefore, I am saved. And I cry, Abba, Father. That is the Spirit driving home biblical truth, whereby it comes to roost in the heart and takes over, and it begins to inundate us and our thinking, and revitalizes our perception of our relationship with Almighty God. But there's a third thing here. It's not, only, not only does this cry indicate life, not only does it express assurance, 
but it conveys desperation. Into our hearts crying. It is the same word used in reference to the demoniacs when they cried upon seeing the Lord Jesus. They cried out. It's the same word used in reference to blind Bartimaeus when he hears that the Lord Jesus is passing by. He cries out. It's the same word used in reference to Christ when he cried from the cross. Why is that significant? It's significant if you are thinking to yourself that this is some little cute baby cooing in the crib. No, 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 no. This is a cry of anguish. This is a cry of intense emotion. Abba, Father. This is the cry of an individual who has been adopted as a son, is now heir of salvation, but finds himself, finds herself living with the tension of being caught between the now and the not yet. It is the individual who now perceives himself as a son of God, part of the family of God, an heir of all those blessings outlined and given to Abraham centuries ago, and yet recognizes at the same time he has not yet quite entered into the full fruition of those blessings. Finds himself still living in what? A very fallen world. A very broken world. A very depraved world. Where all is not as it should be. And he looks around at this world. And he sees the suffering in this world. He sees the consequences of sin and how sin wreaks havoc in the lives of men and women, boys and girls. And there is this cry of anguish. It is a cry of desperation. There's the first implication. We possess a present comforter, verse 6. Here's the second implication. We possess a future inheritance, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, all you budding Bible students, all right, when you are studying, oh, here we go, when you are studying Scripture in 30 seconds or less, when you are studying Scripture, you take your English translation, the ESV, NASV, that would be my recommendation, and you also take the King James Version, the authorized version. Not the new King James Version because they've changed it and it won't help you. You can use it. That's fine. But you need the King James Version. And here's why you need the King James Version. If anyone's reading it right now and you read verse 7, here's what it will say. So thou art no longer. Thou art. And you're all staring at me. So what? So what? So what? What is that? That is the second person singular. You see, in the ESV, so you. That could be the second person singular, or it could be the second person plural. Are you with me? So if I say, you know, how are you? Am I speaking to all of you, or am I speaking to one individual in particular? You don't know until I clarify. That's the problem with our English translations today. You don't know the difference between the second person singular and the second person plural. But in the old King James, you know it. Why? Because it uses the old conjugation. Thou art 
speaking specifically to an individual. To this point, Paul has been speaking in the plural. I find this fascinating. I'm sorry. I find this fascinating. I find this unbelievably encouraging. Now, with all intentionality, he changes to the second person singular. Why? He wants to hit you between the eyes. You, you, you. Thou, 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 thou. You, yes, you. Not just this collective you, undefined, but you, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. Thou are, you are no longer a slave. You're not under the law anymore. That era is gone. You're now a mature adult. You're a son. You've received adoption as sons. And if a son, you've got it. You are an heir through God. This is yours, full possession. Oh, we will see God. There's the great promise, the great portion of this inheritance. I will be their God, and they will be my people. We will see God. And old Puritan writes, we will behold Jesus Christ, through whom the glory of God, his wisdom, holiness, and mercy shall shine forth to our souls. It's the beatific vision. Not only that. God will make us spiritually glorious. Our love for him will burn so intensely on that day, that coming day, that it will bring our hearts into perfect alignment with the will of God. And there's more. God will make us physically glorious. We will put off the perishable and we will put on the imperishable bodies immune for all eternity. Illness, sickness, weakness, forgetfulness, death itself. Oh, Tim Keller writes, there is a glory coming, my friend. There is a glory coming that will be so blindingly powerful that when it falls upon us, it will envelop the whole created order and glorify it along with us. We, as the sons of God, will bring nature with us into a renewed, restored, redeemed reality. There are the two implications. We possess a present comforter, verse 6, and we possess a future inheritance, verse 7. Now, I said some moments ago that my goal, my goal was to share with you the pathway to adoption as sons, the pathway to this great privilege, this privileged position, this position of blessing as being members, uh, part of the family of God. If you're using the sermon notes, you're going to see that there are seven steps in that pathway to adoption, but time is running away, so let me reduce the, from the seven to five, okay? Let me just give you five steps. The first is really going to be encompassing three. The first is this. This is the starting point on this pathway to adoption as sons, is that we understand God is Father. He is Father. God is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the blessed and only sovereign. Uh, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. He's the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. 
And he is a father. Understand this. He is a father in two ways. He is a father to the Lord Jesus. In that sense, he is the first person of the Trinity. We have it in our text. God sent forth the Son. Uh, and so in relation, the inner workings of the triune God, Father, Son. In the second instance, God is a Father in relation to those who believe in the Lord Jesus. In that sense, it is not the first person of the Trinity. Please be clear on this. It is the triune God. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is our Father. When we pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are not praying restrictively to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. We are, referring, we are praying to the triune God who is now our Father. This great, omnipotent, omniscient God, King of kings, Lord of lords, is Father. And Father to all who come to Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus. That brings me to the second point I want to make on this pathway to adoption as sons. We must come to this God. We must come to this God by grace through faith in Christ to receive adoption as sons. No one gets God as Father apart from Christ. No one. God is Father to no one outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a salvific term. The triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, becomes our Father by virtue of our relationship with Christ, we receive adoption as sons. This is what we say. Oh, listen so carefully to this. Perhaps it applies to some here this morning. This is what we say to the woman whose husband has abandoned her. This is what we say. We must come to this God by grace through faith in Christ to receive adoption as sons. And in him we find a father. This is what we say to the corporate executive who is consumed with his work. This is what we say to the young woman whose father left when she was four years old. This is what we say to the young man who thinks life is all about the next high. This is what we say to the criminal who will spend the rest of his life behind bars. This is what we say to the neighbor who knows the characters on her favorite TV show better than her own children. This is what we say to the man who is consumed with pornography. This is what we say to the young woman engaged in the sex trade. This is what we say to all people at all places at all times. God is a loving Heavenly Father, He is. It defies imagination. But we must come to this God by grace through faith in Christ to receive adoption as sons. There is nothing, I have nothing to offer you outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, you get everything. Apart from Christ, you get nothing. God is a father to no one apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That may be very well your predicament this morning. You may fit into one of those categories. Your mind might be going like 90 and you've got all sorts of things running through your mind. All sorts of things perplexing you. 
My friend, here are these three things. If you're not a believer, three things, please. Just you and me right now. Here we go. Number one. Here's the first thing I want you to get. I want you to get this. Your sin, your sin ought to alarm you. Your sin ought to alarm you. The way chest pain alarms a 40-year-old man whose father died of a heart attack in his 40s. Sorry if that upsets anyone in the room, but it serves a purpose. You can imagine the scenario, can't you? A man in his 40s whose father passed away as a young man as a result of a heart attack. And all of a sudden, that young man feels the, that constriction, right? And that pain, oh, that is alarming. What does that young man do? Huh, nothing to worry about. Go on my merry way. No, what does that young man do? He goes looking for help, and he starts looking for it quickly. He's on the phone with 911 getting an ambulance, or he's getting himself to the medical clinic. He's getting himself somewhere to get himself checked out to remedy what he perceives to be a most serious problem. Again, my friend, your sin ought to alarm you like that. If it does not alarm you like that, you don't get it. You still don't understand who you are before a holy God. Oh, what we are as sinful creatures before a holy God ought to shock us, alarm us, and trouble us. But the second thing I want you to get is this. God sent his son into this world to become a curse for us. That's what he's saying in our text, verse 5. That's what he says all the way back in chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so as the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon Calvary's cross, he became sin for me. He became a curse for me. That is, God reckoned Christ to be bearing the load of my sin, my guilt, my shame. And he reckoned the Lord Jesus to be bearing the curse that I deserve because of my sin. And he treated the Lord Jesus accordingly. And there the Lord Jesus bore God's righteous indignation in full. Oh, understand it, please. He sent his son to become a curse for us. And the third thing, my friend, you must get is this. God welcomes. Unbelievably so. He welcomes as adopted sons all who come to him through Christ. He welcomes as adopted sons, all who come to him through Christ. I better say it just in case. Sisters, don't let that be a stumbling block. Adoption as sons, it's pretty good. Guys, we're the bride of Christ, right? We're, we're a woman, we're a bride, adorned, dressed up, beautified, all right? So it's a little give and take here. Men, we're the bride of Christ, it's beautiful, don't let it be a stumbling block. Sisters, your adopted sons, don't trip over it. It's beautiful. It is a designation of unbelievable privilege and estimation on the sight of God, how he now perceives you in the Lord Jesus. The third point I want to make is this, on this pathway to adoption. Now as adopted sons, we are dearly loved, unbelievably loved. God wants us in his family. If he did not want us in his family, we would not be in his family. And he now treats us as only sons, each of us individualistically, as an only son. He welcomes us. He provides for us. He watches over us. This great God knows our frame. He remembers that we are but 
dust. We are but dust. Fourth stepping stone, as adopted sons, we can trust God with the details of our lives. He is actually interested. Many people aren't. You know that. He is. We can entrust to Him the details of our lives. He is not some far-off, distant tyrant. The Son of God has entered time, entered history, assumed our humanity, suffered for us, tasted death for us. And this great God has our best interests in view. And here's the fifth step on this pathway to adoption as sons, as adopted sons. We can wait patiently. We can wait patiently for the inheritance. We can do that. Whatever life brings our way right now, we can wait patiently. Our hope is fixed. Our hope is fixed on the return of Christ. He is coming again. Our hope is fixed on the resurrection of the body, glorification of body and soul. Our hope is fixed on final deliverance from sin. And our hope is fixed on the renovation of the entire cosmos. This hope, I submit it to you, this hope is immune to every illness. It is immune to every grief, every threat, every sorrow, every worry, every challenge, every loss. It is an absolute certainty. Why? Because our God himself has promised it. And our hope is fixed on an unchanging God, an unwavering God. And our hope is fixed on a faithful God. And our hope is fixed on a God who has taken depraved sinners into his family and turned them into his sons. The hymn writer penned quite a long time ago, Behold, what love, what boundless love the Father hath bestowed on sinners lost that we should be now called the sons of God. No longer far from him, but now, by precious blood made nigh, accepted in the well-beloved, near to God's heart we lie. Oh, brothers and sisters, take encouragement from that. What it means to be adopted as a son of God, our Heavenly Father, come now, we pray. Bless your word to our hearts. Amaze us again with your grace, mercy, loving kindness. Cause us to wonder at your Son, the Lord Jesus, who came into this world to not only redeem us, but to secure for us this great and awesome privilege to be numbered among your children heirs of you, co-heirs with Christ. Fill us with joy, we pray. Fill us with peace. Enlarge our hearts in faith and in hope. In Christ's name we do ask it. Amen.